0: All right, now, a little bit of a pregame before we jump into this week's passage. When we started this study in 1 Peter, I warned you about 500 times that the book's about one thing, right? One prevailing imperative to Christians. What is it? What is the message of 1 Peter? You are, you will be... Aliens, strangers, freaks, weirdos, okay? Now, if you considered it all the last two classes we had on submission to authority, have I kept my promise? Does this sound strange to some of you? Is what I'm telling you, this is what Christians are, are you like, wait, wait, what? I don't think so. I have have perceived a uh, relatively significant kind of pushback that what Peter is saying, it's not me, I'm not, it's not me, it's Peter, okay? That what Peter is saying is strange. And a number of us are struggling to agree. I think, I'm pretty sure that I'm faithfully telling you what Peter is saying. And I gather that that's been a little bit difficult for some of you. And to that I would like to say, well, strap in. Because we have a long ways to go, okay? You're going to love this week. Um it is not going to get any less weird. It is not going to get any easier. Um, But this is the deal. It's supposed to be weird. The whole book is supposed to be like, Christians are living different lives. And in fact, I want to just drive one more um, hammer blow at last week's nail, and then we're going to move on to chapter 3. Okay? And as I said, that's going to be a doozy too. So... The friendly debate that we've been having in this room for the last couple weeks is about when we must submit to authority. And my claim, which I think is Peter's claim and Paul's claim and the Bible's claim, is that we must submit to legitimate authority unless doing so causes us to sin and even when doing so causes us to suffer. This does not mean, by the way, that we have no rights. Paul who is another proponent of this idea you can find times at least two times that I'm that immediately come to mind and probably others where he appeals to his citizenship in Rome and he says you can't do that you're not allowed to beat me without a trial because I'm a citizen of Rome there's times where he will appeal to his legal rights and we can do so as well right it's not we're not disallowed to affirm our rights, although we might sometimes voluntarily choose to lay down our rights. We see Paul do that all the time as well. You are allowed to call the cops if your spouse is abusive. Right? No problem. It's not a violation of this. You're allowed to do that. You can also quit your job if you think your boss is just ridiculous. You can quit. Get a new job. You're allowed to sue the water company If they're, like, you know, piping in pollution. Like, our obligation to submit to authority doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity to also push back when they are doing wrong things. We can do that. But at issue last week and maybe the week before was whether there's another exception. Right? Is there some other clause here? Namely, that I don't need to obey the law when somebody else is suffering. Do we obey the government when they're harming somebody else? And it's my position that that's not an additional exception. That's already built in, right? Our obligation not to sin could be violated. If I, if I, if I am obliged to intervene on someone's behalf who is being wronged, who is being harmed, I can do that, or I, it's, I might be able to do that, depending on the exact the circumstances, without, without violating any biblical admonitions, right? We do have, I think, an obligation to rescue hurting people. And I think that it's under that um, rubric that we would see and we would authenticate and legitimize the good work that the Ten Boom family did. If you've read The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom or plenty of other stories we can do, we can see that. Peter could preach the gospel despite the state saying he couldn't because he had a greater obligation to do so. And Paul could free a slave girl despite the fact that all kinds of people didn't like that decision because he had, a, he had a higher obligation. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. And I'm glad that we had a chance to kind of make that a little bit more explicit. I, I think of that as being implicit in the other stuff, but it was worthwhile to have a conversation to bring those things out and see that we really, we do have a moral obligation to love people. So we should do that. However, okay, and this is where I'm going to step on your toes. So be soft. Let's be friends. Okay, lean in. Receive this. I would like you to think of the last hundred times that you found yourself chafing under authority, okay? The last hundred times that somebody wanted you to do something that you're like, I don't want to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. Okay, it could be your boss, maybe it's your pastor, maybe it's your governor, maybe it's your husband. Yes, husband. We'll get to that in a minute. Bear with me, okay? Think of the last hundred times that you had the opportunity to submit to someone and you didn't want to, okay? How many of those concerned starting an underground railroad? How many of those concerned hiding refugees under your floorboards? How many of those concerned doing evangelism in North Korea? And how many were about you being inconvenienced or limited or otherwise annoyed by some yahoo who was in charge and thought he knew better than you what you ought to do? My guess is that if you're like me, there have probably been a minuscule number of times that your obligation to do good to someone was being checked by someone in authority. In fact, it may literally have never happened in your entire life, possibly, but it has probably been a daily occurrence that some authority has constrained you in ways that you would rather they not. And so I would just suggest to you that it is probably a good idea if you don't let an event that may happen once or twice or never in your whole life, justify your ignoring a biblical admonition that will be relevant to you literally every day of your life. Now, if you get the opportunity to build an underground railroad, by all means, be my guest, right? Please do. But in the meantime, submit to the authorities that God has put in your life. All right, can we still be friends? All right, First Peter 3, are you ready? Some will not like this any better. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, ...when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment... ...such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self... ...the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit... ...which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past... ...who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful... They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And then verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Okay, you ready? <laughs> so I'm just curious, who thinks, uh, which is harder to take? Last week or this week? Who would say last week? And who would say this week? None, some, might, okay. I think if we're talking about being strangers, this, pa- this is a good passage for strangers, there's a lot about this that's going to sound kind of weird to some. Now, maybe not to others, but to many people, certainly in the broader community outside of the church, this is going to sound all kinds of weird. And there's some interesting things, not just the first line. There's a lot of things in here that could cause people to pause. And so we're just going to talk about as many of them as you want. We're just going to kind of let Scripture speak. We're going to do our best to understand it, see where else is, are there other passages in Scripture that speak about this that might help and inform And let's try to understand how broad, how specific, what does it mean, what does it look like? And we'll just start at verse one. So you ready? Let's go. First Peter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. What does that mean, you guys? What is Peter trying to say here? And I'd love you to tell me instead of me to tell you. What does this mean? Walk the walk. Don't talk the talk. You know, walk the walk. You know, live the life. With your husband uh, evangelize with your actions. Okay, great. So excellent. So what? What Stuart is pointing out here, I think, is that who is Peter's addressing wives, but is he addressing a particular kind of wife? In like, what's the bullseye focus of this comment? Christian, Christ, Christian wife. But there's one more kind of condition here. Save. With an unbelieving husband. Okay, this is the specific circumstance. Now it's there's there's oftentimes there'll be a statement here that's got a bullseye, but then like broader realms of application. But our bullseye focus here is believing women with unbelieving husbands. Nick, did you want to add to that? Well, I just thought it was interesting that he, he brings it out as an assumption that most of these women's husbands aren't believers. Um well he's addressing it, it that it kind of leads you to that. It seems like it's a, it, this is not an uncommon case, right? So in the way, and I don't know that, I'm not sure that I'd be able to agree that it's necessarily a majority, but that it's certainly a, a a distinct possibility, right? So in the same way, wives, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So it's certainly not a uniform case. And he's not even saying that, I mean, it could be if any, not when any, but but it seems like, He's addressing this because there's a commonality. You've got believing wives married to unbelieving men. And so perhaps an unbeliever married a believer, which is generally speaking a really bad idea. But at this point in the history of the church, there's another circumstance that's far more likely, which is what? No reason. Yes. So an unbeliever married a believer, and then she came to Christ and he didn't. And what do I do here? This is a this is a particular circumstance that he's addressing. So so excellent. And so in that again, this is not the only case, that, but it's a particular case. In that case, what is his what's his counsel? What's his advice? That's not even advice. What's his direction to these women? Yeah, Suzanne. Just to behave in a godly
1: and Christ-like manner for their husband and be submissive to his leadership. That's right. I even mean, if she doesn't completely agree.
0: Yes, so so you're you're an unbel- you're a believing wife. You're married to an unbelieving man, and what do you need to do? He's like, just be super sweet, right? Be godly, be respectful, be submissive, be that that your beauty should come. This is a weird thing. If in case, let's just set the submission thing aside for the moment because that's often a, a flashpoint for folks. What's the other strange thing he says to these women? And if any of you have your hair braided right now and you want to untangle it really quick, <laughs> like you can. We don't want to call you out too much, right? He says, um, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Take off your earrings also, um, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes, right? Does this sound strange to us? This is weird. Now, okay, so what, is that, what does that clause add to it? So, number one, submit to your husbands. Number two, no hair, no braided hair, no gold jewelry, and what's the other thing? Fine clothes. He
2: didn't say that, though. He says, don't let your beauty come.
0: Okay. Excellent. Very, very good. Thank you. Okay. So, what's what's the distinction that you're making from my misquote? So the distinction is
2: your beauty should come from your true inner self, character,
0: and uh, your, the way you treat your husband, not from what you put on the outside. Okay. Great. So could you, so you're saying? Could have both. Are you, okay? So you're suggesting that maybe you could be beautiful inside and be beautiful outside. But does it not seem like there's something here about the hair and the gold that he's drawing attention to? And in fact, you guys know where else this exact framing shows up someplace else in the New Testament. We're going to make it worse before we make it better, okay? Do you know where else this shows up? Ba-ba-ba-ba. Go go to 1 Timothy. Well, what happened to my... What is happening? Okay, go to 1 Tim. And I probably should have looked up where this is. Maybe chapter three, but maybe I'm thinking of First Peter. So if anybody finds it, get there first. Go for it. He's going to say, let's see, uh, two 1 Timothy two nine. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So that seems a little, even a little bit broader, Brad. Of, he's like he's like. This is Paul, not Peter. But they're saying is this is remarkably similar, okay? So what are we to do with that? And, and we're allowed to, We're always... I've said in this class a hundred times. We're always allowed to get things wrong on the way to getting it right. Especially when we encounter things that are strange to our ears. To be like, okay, I want to be submitted to Scripture. I want to know what God has said. I want to understand it rightly. What do I do with that? What, are the, what is this, this pairing? Wives, submit to your husbands. Especially, it's not only, but it's in particular... For believing women married to unbelieving men, and also the, your beauty source. What, what is he? What's he addressing here, Kat?
2: I think that it means to be modest and not be all showy and everything. You know, because you see people out there that, you know, show off a lot of stuff they probably shouldn't. And
0: <laughs> stuff. Not to look like that. Yeah. Okay. So there's an ultimate. There's a call to modesty, to not to be showing stuff that we shouldn't. Very good, Lily.
1: I think there's, um, in both examples, both the example of modesty of spirit and modesty of appearance. Mm. I think those are two things in there. But I think at the heart of both of those things is that trust in the Lord. Like, I know when I have a gentle, mm. quiet spirit with my husband, generally, it's a reflection not of my willingness to submit to him, but my yes. willingness to trust God.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And I think that... I think that the external adornment versus the adornment of the heart is is something of a parallel to that. Like, where are you putting your trust, in what other people can see or what God sees? And I think it's I think there's a sweet parallel. There.
0: Yes. Okay. And what's, and I think it's exactly right on the thing that links these two things. If you couldn't hear Lily, what she's saying is what seems to be in this thing of like when you submit to your husband. Man, that is a vulnerable place. Like, what if he makes a bad decision? What if I'm injured by the thing? What if he makes what if he makes the wrong call? What do I do? I gotta can I trust the Lord to lead through this structure, just like we trust the Lord to lead through state structures, knowing that they're both gonna get stuff wrong. That's a trust issue. And then modesty is like, wow, can I, if I'm can I trust him that there's a modesty not just in my behavior here, modesty of spirit, modesty of beauty, that I don't have to put on all of my manipulative powers to get what I want? Well, I don't know, but I kind of like my manipulative powers. They've proven helpful to me, right? Can I lay those things down? and trust that God is going to function. And there's a really good clue in the text that you're really on to something, but we'll get there in a minute. But there are a couple of hands. So, Christine?
2: Um, And this kind of reminds me, I know that the scripture we're addressing is focused on women, but generally, for everybody, it reminds me of Romans 13, verse 14. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And kind of the idea of putting Christ on as clothing. And this idea. In the passage we're looking at, where women are adorning themselves, putting things on, there's a process to, and a work involved in making beautiful the inner spirit. It's not something that happens, but there's a work involved.
0: Yes, excellent. Okay, so we're seeing this connection between these two ideas. We see it showing up in Romans 13 as well, that if we're going to submit to the authorities of Romans 13, that's what Romans 13 is all about, submitting to authority. And then there's this claim that we're going to put on Christ. All of this is suggesting, you guys, a radically different way that we are to live. That if we're aliens and we're strangers, we're not going to use the same tools that the world uses to get its way. You have been discipled all your days by a planet, by a world system that tells you this is how you get what you want, right? And men and women, you've, you've all learned what's, what's most effective in your world, right? What are the things that will help you get your way? And we're going to get to the men in a, in a minute. We'll see what maybe some of the, the um, one of the particular failings that men can use in, in, in trying to accomplish their will. But for men and women, we both, Peter's is saying, this, we're Christians. We're going to do this differently than the world does. Okay, excellent. Bob? I think the first word in chapter three it, in the ESV, it says likewise, I think the NIV is in the same way. Yes.
2: Is critical because that points us back to something likewise and what he's just been talking about. It's kind of what Christine and has been talking about is the focus on Jesus sure. that, and how he was the example. And even when we get to the men, likewise. Yes. I mean, really, the men actually, I think we have a tendency to say, oh, the women, they got it bad. I think the men have it really tough because they're supposed to treat their wives like Christ treated
0: them. Uh, absolutely. So when we, when, so the, the, this is Peter's, ver, what we're looking at, First Peter 3 is paralleled in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, I think. But Ephesians 5 is where we tend to go. And so the, the great teaching on marriage in the New Testament that is by Paul in Ephesians 5, and his whole paradigm there is that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Husbands are cast into the role of Jesus wives are cast into the role of the church and the wives are therefore meant to mirror the church's honor and respect and partnership with submission to Christ and husbands which everybody like kind of loses their mind over and then you read the husband script it says oh yeah you're the crucified one you're the one who is supposed to daily consider your wives needs as more important than your own you bear the responsibility of leadership but you bear it um, with a, with a nail in your hand, that the way that you lead must be the way that Christ loves the church. Peter doesn't, Peter's not as explicit in making that connection there, but you're right, Bob, that the, the likewise he's pointing back to what he's just been talking about, which is Jesus' radical submission to authority for us. His, his willing to absorb all kinds of misery for the good of someone else. And so that, that picture, Paul makes it far more explicit, but it's absolutely the, the logic behind what Peter's saying, for sure. Okay, Suzanne, you had your hand up, but you're just down now. Are you... Do we move on? Okay, it's great. Uh, was it Jason? It also harkens back to the description of the Messiah and Isaiah, because it says he had no beauty to attract us to him. So it was...
2: So it's, it's making a direct comparison in being Christ-like.
0: Yes, absolutely. We, I mean, it's, in, in all things, our lives, and men and women perhaps in different ways, or bosses and employees perhaps in different ways, or, you know... Generals and soldiers in perhaps different ways. We are we're imitators of Christ. And there's things that we can take. We can look at Jesus' submission to the Father. right? Equal in glory. Equal in essence. Equal in all manner. And yet he says, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That the Son works together with the Father to achieve the Father's purposes. And we can look to Christ as the leader. right? And how, how does he lead? Through sacrificial, self-abdicating, um, other-pursuing love. All these things are going to manifest for us. Okay, now, one more thing. I want to go back to what Lily said because this is important. Peter says this in verse 6. He says, you are her daughters, uh, Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay? Which I think is a really big clue that you're on to something here. That what Peter is advocating is, is that we're stepping into a place where if I lay down all of the systems and all of the tools that I've generally used to protect myself and to get my way... That's very frightening, right? Because what if, if I'm not protecting me, well, then who is? And Peter's admonition is, no, no, come no, here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Let Jesus be your protector, right? That Jesus specifically entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and then allowed the world to do what it would. And he says, I know that's scary. I know that's really, really frightening. But don't give way to fear. Trust the Lord through these systems and let's just see what happens. It's not to say it's not going to be, uh, there, there might be things that are difficult. It was certainly difficult for Jesus. But it may be that if we can trust him and lay down these systems that we've tended to use to get our way, that God might bring about something better than what our kind of machinations would have, would have produced. That's where, that's where Peter's right. And Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go, let's take, how much time do I have? Let's, let's, let's get the whole thing on the table and then we'll kind of unpack it. Let's go to Peter. Um, well, no, let, let, me, let me say first, anything on the first six verses you want to, like, question or speak to? Kelly Sue.
2: I just wanted to point out the, uh, uh, the verse where it talks about having a gentle and quiet spirit in God's sight, which is very precious. I've heard a lot of young women say, well, gosh, I'm alienated because I'm a seven on the Enneagram, or I'm boisterous and outgoing and effervescent and full of life, and I'm not gentle and quiet and demure. This is only the introverts can succeed at this. And and to that I would say, you're missing the whole point, it's not about your personality, it's about, it's exactly what Lily said, it's not even about your inner versus your outer beauty, it's about, do you trust, do you have that confident trust in God that he really can, God himself can lead you through the authority structures he's putting over you, that he works through those himself, and that when you're trusting the person you're submitting to, you're trusting in the Lord to work through that person. Versus you give way to that fear, and, you, and when you give way to fear, you want control. So you take control back, Yes. and then that is when you're not going to submit because you f- feel it's up to you to accomplish it mm-hmm. um, because you're afraid and you have to have control. And that fear is legitimate, right? Of course. These are fallen men and fallen structures who are susceptible to corruption. Mm-hmm. So of course, if the husband is supposed to lead, Satan will tempt that husband to to misuse that leadership. So there is reason to be afraid. You are in a vulnerable position, but can you put your trust confidently in the Lord? And that gentle and quiet spirit isn't about your personality. It's about saying, I don't have to take control of this situation and assert my will over this person to conform them to my wishes or image or want. I can release it to the Lord because I can put my confident trust in Him because I don't have to be afraid because He can lead through the structures He's...
0: Absolutely. That's so good, Kelly. I'm so glad that you had the wisdom to kind of pause us on that. So this, this line here, if, uh, let's see, your beauty should come be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Gentle and quiet, what Kelly's saying is that doesn't mean like boring and timid, right? So you said, I don't, I don't speak Enneagram very well, but if you're like a fun, boisterous woman, this is not a rebuke, Right? Right? That, that's not what he's saying about that. The, the, the problem is that very often, men and women, we both of us, we're just going to pitch a fit when we don't get our way. If I don't get my way, you could, you could be, whether you're aggressive or passive aggressive, there's all kinds of ways that we can, when we don't get away. And what Peter is advocating for is a humility to accept someone else's leadership. Right? And we, we bow up against things all the time. I mean, just across this is like the very nature of humanity, is that we're rebellious people. So this is not rebuking, being fun and playful and, and having a great laugh at all, but rather this unwillingness to allow somebody else that God may have placed over you to have the say so, to be the initiator, to be the the, the determiner of the tie, whatever it is. Right? It matters that we that we have all kinds of freedom and fun to play. But we want to recognize that I have, there's, there's a psalm, somebody might know it, the unweaned, my spirit is weaned. What psalm is it?
1: Um, I don't remember, but I've calmed and quieted my soul within me. My soul is like, I'm like a weaned child. Like a mother. Uh, yeah. And I was just raising my hand about that.
0: Yeah, like a weaned child. So, you know, it's 20-something, I think. I don't know. But there's, this, there's a psalm that basically, that, I think it's David, he describes himself as being like a weaned child. Mean, remember, have you guys weaned your children? Right? And they don't, did they like it? They didn't like it at all. Right? And they fight and they, they want what they want, what they're accustomed to. They don't understand why you're denying them and holding on them. Until that season ends. And then a weaned child is now at peace. There's a new set of rules. And they can drink from a cup or whatever, whatever is happening, right? And, you, and life has moved on. And there's a time in our lives, there's a lot of times in our lives, where we are like an unweaned child. We're going to fight. We're going to kick against the goads until we're able to say, okay, I'm at peace. And David is saying, as an adult man, I had to get to the point of being at peace with whatever God has decided, right? I am not like a weaned child. Are you? Like... Is anybody? I mean, for him to say, like, I'm like that, I'm like, really? How did you pull that off? Because I'm going to want to fight and kick. But there are seasons, right? I'll I'll phase through it. All right, let's take a look. Well, one more thing on the first six verses. You want a question? You want to speak to? You want to pull on? Okay, Jesse.
2: Is it fair to say that um, verse 3 is not necessarily a prohibition against looking
0: nice and the two things aren't mutually exclusive? Yes, okay, good. So, I, yeah, I did kind of only lightly touch that. So, verse 3 is, Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair, wearing of jewelry, and fine clothes. So, I think what's ultimately going on there is that Peter is referring to, and Paul is referring to, a cultural reality that we might not be perfectly aware of so that, that was marked by jewelry and gold and, and uh, an ostentatiousness. And he's saying, don't be like that okay? Not you can't look nice. He's not saying women should never brush their hair and braids are of the devil. I mean, that, it, could, it could feel that way. But I think that, I think that men and women are both allowed to take a shower, shave, curl your hair, put on makeup, well, whatever, you know, there's ranges of how we do this, right? But I think that's fine. It's a little bit, uh, let's see, how would I explain this? So some, and we have to be careful that we don't overstate this, but sometimes I see you, Suzanne. Give me one second, and I'll, this is going to take a minute, and then I'll come back to you. Um, sometimes the Bible will use a shorthand, speaking to its local audience, making allusions to things that we might not be aware of fully. So, um, let me show you one of these. Go to First Kings. Flip back. This is this is this will be a little bit of a side trail, but I I think the principle is useful. Go to First Kings. Uh, where is First Kings? Good grief. 1 Kings chapter 10, or no, go to to 1 Kings 11 if you're on a digital Bible, and then scroll back up into chapter 10. I want you to see something, because this might not be immediately obvious. Um, And we can start at verse, start at verse 26, okay? 1 Kings 10, 26, I'm going somewhere with this, so just bear with me. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful and sycamore trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku. That's how you say that. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They exported them all to the kings of the Hittites and to the Arameans. Okay. Is this good news or bad news?
2: Bad news.
1: Good news.
0: See, it's weird, right? I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just saying. The dude's got a ton of money and a bunch of horses, okay? Now, it's gonna, it's gonna, we're going to kind of tip the scales in just a second. He also says, though, in chapter 11, the king Solomon loved many foreign women besides the pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites she must not intermarry with them. And by chapter 11, we're like, oh, I see where we're going with this. This is all bad news, right? He's got all this money, got all these horses, got all these all these wives, and something has gone amiss, okay? What might not be obvious is that specific triad of those three things shows up earlier in the Bible in Deuteronomy, someplace, 17. Deuteronomy, maybe, might be. Let's see. Deuteronomy. Kelly, you were just talking about this the other day. Am I right or wrong? I
2: don't know. (laughs) Um,
0: Hang on, hang on. Sugar. Here it is, right? Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Check this out. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has said, You know, he must not go back that way. He must not take many wives, or his heart would be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, you hear the. Tr- I mean, it's boom, boom, boom. Now, if you didn't know about Deuteronomy 17, you might not read 1 Kings 10 and 11 as it's meant to be read, because you're missing out on this broader. There's a, there's a context, there's a meaning thing. I suspect that what's going on here with this gold and braided hair kind of thing has a similar like anchor point of which we may not be perfectly aware. It's not hard. You wouldn't need to have Deuteronomy 17 to recognize that, like, that if you're super rich, your life's probably going to spin out of control. We've seen this, right? Like, this is not an uncommon thing. And if you've got multiple wives, that's a bigger clue that things are probably going to go crazy. The horses might not really trouble you, but probably the horses are a sign of wealth and his relationship to Egypt. Specifically, don't go back to Egypt because now you're building these Alliances that are all bad. Okay? In a similar way, I think we could recognize, and I don't know, I, I, there are probably some women in, in culture that you're going to read about in like, I what's a magazine? People? I don't know. In some magazine that, that you can be like, yeah, you don't, if she walked in here dressed like that, there'd all be a sense of like, maybe that's not okay, right? Is this a phenomenon we know that there's such a thing as an ostentatiousness, and he's probably—it is probably the case that both Peter and Paul are referring to a particular over-the-top flavor of that that we should be wary of. But he's not saying that women aren't allowed to be beautiful. In fact, the Bible over and over and over again points to and affirms the beauty of women. It shows up all over the place, right? I mean. Uh, there's all these different characters we could, that we can see the delight of that and it's good. So I don't think it's a total prohibition on being beautiful. I think he's probably pointing to something that's a little bit beyond our, a little bit over our horizon of an ostentatiousness that we want to avoid. Okay? But, oh my gosh, we've got to move on to the dudes. But, but, be very, very careful in your application of that principle because we can, we can do this with all sorts of things. If we take every time the Bible says not to do that, we say, ah, that's culturally conditioned. Disregard. Then that's super dangerous waters. Every time the Bible says, you know, that we should be generous, well, they were living in a different moment. I don't have to be generous. When the Bible says, hey, sex is for people that are married, you say, well, I mean, that was thousands of years ago. That doesn't apply anymore. And we can easily wrap things up in this little cultural conditioning bucket so that we can disregard it. And I would say you don't want to do that. So you want to be very, very careful about disregarding things because it doesn't happen to fit into your pre existing structure. Okay. All right. Clock is ticking. Let's go to the dudes. Verse seven, I think it is. Let's see. First Peter three seven. Husbands, in the same way. Thank you, Bob Blacksmith. Again, considering the way that Christ lived His life, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. ESV. What do you guys have for that? In an understanding way. That's it. Live with your wife in an understanding way and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life." Now, this thing that is meant to be a kindness is also sometimes inflammatory. What does the phrase weaker partner mean?
1: ESV says weaker vessel.
0: Weaker vessel. Okay. It
1: would imply physical form in that case.
0: Okay. So what do we mean when we say that women are weaker? More mentally feeble? No. <laughs> no? Okay. All right. physically, okay. Rachel, do you want to speak to that? I was
2: gonna say isn't it physical weakness?
0: Yeah, so physical weakness I think is in view, but I don't think that's the bullseye. What's the, the bullseye is, is this, you guys? Women are more vulnerable in the world. Have you ever noticed this? Okay? The physical physical structure is part of that. But if if we're if we're talking about like whenever basically it's just true whenever anything bad happens in the world do you know who suffers the most women and children this is not controversial right throughout the world throughout the history of the world now more men die in wars and so with apologies to like you know Antietam. okay generally speaking women are more vulnerable he's not this is not an insult at all there's nothing that he's saying here to say like Women are less capable. Women are more mentally, you know, incompetent. Women, none of those things that are sometimes charged here. All he's saying is, Peter, listen, or Peter's saying to the dudes, listen, your wives are in a place of vulnerability for all of human history. If the men do not, number one, respect women. Number two, treat them as heirs, co-heirs, partners, fellows in this thing. If you don't live with her in an understanding way, recognizing that she has Certain vulnerabilities, you know, you can get somebody pregnant and walk away, and it's no problem for the guy. And it's a massive issue for the woman left behind. Whenever poverty is, sing- have you guys ever heard the phrase single fatherhood? I mean, it's a thing, but single motherhood outnumbers single fatherhood by, I mean, what's the factor? A hundred, a 1, thousand, ten thousand? I don't even know, right? The difficulties of life are more, are inordinately borne by women. And Peter's like, you guys, They live in a vulnerability, and your job is to protect. Your job is to not take advantage of the fact of your greater physical power, the fact of your probably, in almost every culture through history, your greater societal um, influence. He's saying, listen, respect your wives. Treat them with respect. Treat them as co-heirs because there is a vulnerability, and if you won't do that, they're more liable to be harmed. There they have a greater cause to be afraid. And so, dudes, live with your wife in an understanding way. Be thoughtful. What is it like? It's easy, it's so easy to go through your whole life thinking about the world from your perspective. Lord knows I've done that plenty. He says, Can you pause, stop? What's it like for her? Think about this through her eyes. Can you slow down? Even this whole conversation. If she is, P- Peter recognizes this is gonna be scary. He says, Listen. Be like Sarah, right, who lived in this place of trust. And by the way, her husband did some really bonehead things. Have you noticed this? Abraham, like some of the stuff that Abraham does, I'm like, how How could that have possibly worked out? It's just a disaster. So he says, understand her. Listen. Be thoughtful. Respect her. She's your partner. She's your co. Okay, John. One of the boneheaded things things that Abraham did, his wife put him out to. Okay, so we're all capable of doing some really dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The Hagar thing was a crazy thing. I'm thinking more of when he told the Pharaoh or the king that this is not my wife. Sure, she can live in with you. I'm like, that's just so out of the, out of the realm for me. I don't know what to think about that. DFP? Um,
2: I'm a little not sure on this. Uh, in verse 7. Husbands live with their wives in an understanding way. And then... It, goes to a more general, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Is that second part a more general
0: statement, or is that specifically a reference to his wife? Yes, good. It is um, interesting. So, the, the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek word here, your wives, um, is not the word wife. It's your woman. Okay. but. Yes, but the your is it is specifically it's his particular wife. So now it's certainly the case that, as like I said, like there's bl- lot, lots of things in scripture have this bullseye, right? This is exactly we're talking about how I how Tim treats Kelly is the bullseye. But there are kind of like circles coming out from that that the way that I treat Kelly has there are there there are particular uniquenesses that that obviously I'm not going to share with people who aren't Kelly, but. There are also perspectives on womanhood that that emanate beyond that. right? But it, the Bible is actually really pretty clear that this this particular dynamic um, is unique in the marriage context. Meaning, uh, um, while they're, they're between myself and another woman who's not Kelly, there's all kinds of space for a kind of a mutual, deferring, respectable orientation. But it's not the same as this particular uni- unique thing. But did I not? Did I miss what you wanted to go after? It no, kind of gets there. Um, I'm also struck that the, the prayers hindered thing.
2: I mean, this harkens back to what is it? Commandment six: the Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. You know, I, I mean, it, the the relationships we have with
0: people directly relate to how our relationship with God is going to go. Oh, for sure. And it and and. Peter is really kind of turning the knife on this a little bit. He's like, husbands, listen, if you think that you can get away with this, you can't. Because God is watching the way you treat your wives. So if you're, if all, if all you're hearing as a husband is like, oh, great, I get to make all the decisions. Peter's like, man, I'm telling you, this is going to go poorly for you. So be be thoughtful. Be considerate um, both for, for both partners as you live in this relationship. Okay, so we're almost out of time. Lily?
1: Oh, I just... I thought this was a neat verse when I first heard it was in Malachi, the second chapter, and it's, the husband's wailing because God won't hear their prayers. And he says, because I've seen you. You've been faithful to
0: the wife of your youth. There you go. And it's probably what Peter's referring to, right? Is this, is that God is watching our lives, which is the great hope, right? The whole thing is, can you exist in a situation where you're not going to use your manipulations, you're going to trust the Lord? Well, only if the Lord is trustworthy. Right, and this is again in the same way he says it to the women. He says it to the men. We we think we live in a closed system where it's just me and me and you, but in both cases, Peter Peter is saying, No, look look, broaden your picture. God is in charge here. God is in charge here. He is watching all of it. And if you will live your life in such a way that is chiefly Godward and not manward, you will get a different result. It'll be strange. It'll be weird. Because nobody does this, but that's what we signed up for. We are Christians. And part of the essence of this thing is a willingness to see through all these pseudo authorities to the real authority and to trust him. It's really hard. It's super hard, which is why, he spent, why we spent a week, remember we had a big long build up before we got there. This is where maybe at this moment is where your mind has got to go back to the living hope and the living stone. And the living word. And all the stuff that Peter was doing to get us ready for all the weird stuff. This is now where we need to have done that good homework to really understand. Okay, Lord, can I trust you if I put down all the things that I use to make my life work? Will you be faithful? That's what Peter's all about. Okay? All right. More next week. We'll see you then. Thanks.